This morning, I, I wanted to do something kind of uh, that, that I've been challenged with um, over the last couple of months, and that's oftentimes we go through a series and we will map out a series for like a year or two or months, and uh, we'll have li- literally every passage we're going to be teaching through for a year or two years mapped out prior. And I, I've really felt challenged lately, like when we get to sections of scripture where they demand a little more um, elaboration, that we just pause and we take some time to elaborate a little more on them and not feel rushed through passages. Uh, so it, it was interesting as we went through Psalm 121 and Psalm 128 last week. Last week I felt like we got done and we talked a lot about the, the fear of God and following God. Um, and uh, I've really felt like I wanted to elaborate more on this fear of God this morning. And in a few weeks, we're actually going to start a new series on the book of Matthew. And that series could take us a year, year and a half. I don't know how long we're going to be in that, depending on how long the Lord wants us to be there. Uh, but that series, the whole purpose of it is going to be discussing what are the ways of the Lord? What are the ways of Jesus? How do we follow him? And so, um, but it all starts with this fear of the Lord as we kind of uh, uh, chatted about last week. And so, um, Again, the Psalm 121 and 128 were these psalms of ascent, um, and so these were songs that the Israelites, the, the Jews would sing as they were making their way into Jerusalem three times a year for these main feasts. They were these songs of reminder, songs that the whole family would sing, songs that brought them back to center, uh, really in a world that even during their time was out of control. How many of you guys feel like there are times when you need to be brought back to center in our world because things are just out of control. Thanks, Anthony. I see that hand. Uh, at least one of you does. And so last week we looked at Psalm 128, and there was a couple things that we discussed last week. One, uh, that maybe we don't need some new revelation from God, but maybe we, we need this new determination uh, from God, this new determination to fear him and to follow his ways. Um, second, that if we want our families to flourish and we want our city to flourish and to prosper, then it starts with individuals that actually take this to heart, that will actually fear him and follow his ways. And so third, we also talked about the fact that this fear is often downplayed. And I often have heard it preached that this fear is merely a reverence for God. And, and I, I want to clarify that, that um, it, it most definitely is a reverence of God, um, but I I also believe that it's a, an actual fear. Um, I, I want to clarify that, that it's not just reverence, it's actually fear. And in the New Testament, the word fear, as we talked about last word, is this Greek word phobos, which is where we get the word phobia. And so this fear, though it's this reverence and this high regard for the Lord, it's also a healthy fear of God. And so I, I don't like it when that term fear is downplayed to only reverence, because it's also a legit fear of him. But for the Jews, we talked about last week, that it also was a fear of what life would be like without him. Like, what would life be like? They feared what life would look like if God's hand was not upon their life. And so I left last week, and I honestly just felt like this, this idea of the fear of God needed a little more uh, clarity and definition as best as I can do this morning. But I also understand this, that there's this amazing and strange tension that we live in with God, knowing that he loves us and that we also fear him. 
And, and that's just a really awkward tension to live in, but a tension that I think is very healthy for us to continue to press into and to try and understand. It, it sounds strange even to say it, but God does love us, and God also expects us to fear him. And I just feel like the church never talks about this idea of fear of the Lord because we don't fully understand it. And so we just shove it away and we won't talk about it because our only concept of fear in the world we live in is a really unhealthy form of fear. And so we, we perceive or we know fear is something that we run from, not something that we run towards. And this fear of God is actually something that we press into. It's odd that we never talk about it because the Bible actually mentions this fear of God 300 times, over 300 times in Scripture. 300 times. If it's mentioned 300 times, I think that there's some value, some merit in it. And so it also more often speaks of, the, of fearing God as a positive thing, not, not a negative. And so we just can't wrap our minds around how it actually could be positive, though, because our only context with fear is something we run from that we don't like and not understanding what the positive side of this fear is. And so um, I want to pray, and then I want to get into a, a couple passages that we're going to read through this morning, hopefully try to define this fear as best we can, and I hope encourage you guys this morning with what this practically looks like for you to live this out. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fact that it's your spirit that is leading in this place and guiding us, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and move amongst us, God, to um, be the one to take your word and translate it into our hearts. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I pray, God, that this would not be a religious motion or a form or function that we go through this morning, but an opportunity for us to actually engage and partner with the Most High God, with you this morning, Jesus. And so um, we ask, God, that you have your way with us, in us, and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Are you guys okay? Okay. Awesome. Alrighty then. Um, okay, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 18... Here's an example. Joseph uh, wins his brother's trust when he declares that he is this God-fearing man. And so I want to give you kind of a survey of a few passages where it talks about God-fearing and the, the fear of God. And so Joseph wins his brother's trust when he declares that he's a God-fearing man. And, and then again in Exodus 1, it was because the midwives feared God that they obeyed him instead of the authorities by sparing the Hebrew babies. Um, then we have in, in Exodus chapter 9, Pharaoh brings disaster on his nation because he didn't fear God. Um, in, in Exodus 18, Moses chose leaders to help him on the basis that they feared God and that they wouldn't take bribes. And he told the Hebrews that God met with them in a terrifying display of his power so that they wouldn't sin. Um, the, in Leviticus 19, the, the Mosaic law, law actually cites the, the fear of God is a reason to treat the disabled and the elderly well, that it prompts us to action. And if you think that it's only Old Testament passages that speak of the fear of God, I, I want to note that Jesus states this stronger than anybody. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 34, you guys can turn there. I'm going to kind of try to summarize this and move through this passage as quick as I can by, and get to the point. But um, Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10, 
And they're freshies. They're like freshies, right? These guys have no idea what's in store for them and what it is Jesus is calling them. They've come out of fishing and all their, their careers and their livelihood, and they've left everything behind, and they're going to follow Jesus with all that they have, and they have no clue what's ahead. And so in Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is sending them out, and he gives this inaugural speech to them, it goes something like this. And I want you guys to hear this. He says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Is that not the most encouraging thing you've ever heard? I'm, I'm sending you out like sheep amidst wolves. So he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as, as doves. And then he goes on to say, beware of men. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says this. He says, beware of men. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, be fearful of men. He says, beware of men. And this is huge because he, he goes on to say that men will deliver you to their courts, that they will flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before kings and governors for my sake in order to bear witness of Jesus before them. So he's basically telling me, you're about to get devoured. There's a bunch of stuff about to happen to you, and it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And he's saying, beware of men. But he's not saying, be fearful of what's ahead. Be fearful of men. He's saying, beware, just to let you know that this stuff is going to happen. And then he goes on to say this. He says, when this happens, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't worry about how you're supposed to speak or what you're supposed to say. For what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. Does anybody like it when you have to stand up and give a speech somewhere and you're just kind of pushed up there to do it and you have no context as to what you're going to say or what you're going to do? And just say, be spirit-led, brother, sister. You know, just go for it. Let, let the Lord lead. It's terrifying. And these guys are being sent out into a world that is seeking to devour them because they're taking a stand for Christ. They don't have a clue necessarily what, how to craft their words properly. They're not these amazing communicators and guys that were totally prepped for this. They're being sent out to be led by the Spirit of God to do as Jesus has asked them to do. And so what's Jesus getting at so far to his disciples? You're going to go into a world that wants to destroy you. But don't be afraid of the men that will persecute you. And don't be afraid of taking a stand and proclaiming the gospel to them. He's building up this whole idea of the fear of man, which is really the only context of fear that you and I have. In this world that we know of, when we think of fear, we think of being fearful of people, being fearful of man, being fearful of circumstances. And Jesus is saying to them, don't be fearful of this. And he goes on to tell them that the Spirit of God will give them words to speak. He says that brothers will kill brothers, that fathers will kill children, that children will kill parents. I mean, he's just going, this, this is going to get out of control, out of hand. You're about to experience and see stuff that you never even knew could happen, that it couldn't get this gnarly. And it all sounds to look super bleak for the disciples, right? If you were one of the disciples at this time, how many of you are being like, yeah, Jesus, I'm ready. This sounds so awesome. Like, I'm all in. It sounds super bleak. But I want you to hear what Jesus is actually getting at. He's telling them that they will see and experience the worst of the worst for Jesus' sake. Because they're followers of the ways of Jesus. But he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the one who's not driven by the fear of man, 
the one that, that does what God has asked him to do, the one that says what God has asked him to say, will actually endure to the end and is saved, is set apart. Does this sound familiar to last week? Like, fear God, follow his ways. And that's really the, the stage that Jesus is setting for them. But then Jesus goes on to say this, uh, verse 24, uh, part B. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. Like, don't be afraid. Let it rip. And then he says this in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Isn't that interesting? Do not fear those that can impact you in the flesh. They actually have zero authority or impact on your soul. And so Jesus is constantly reiterating this. Don't fear man. Don't fear those that hurt you and that persecute you, for they have no authority over your soul. They can't take your soul from you. They did not create you. They have no authority over you. And why is Jesus saying all this? Because he's building a point. And he makes it in 1028. He says, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And then this is how he follows that statement. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's an intense statement. Don't fear man or circumstances or anything they can say or do to you on this earth that impacts your body. Fear the one who actually has total control over your soul and body. The one that actually can judge whether or not you spend eternity with him or in hell. And that's a holy fear. Recognizing that God is so big that he actually is the judge. That he actually determines the state of your soul and where it spends eternity. And then he ends this portion of the statement with this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. That's power. And this message was delivered to instill a little bit of fear in his disciples, but not fear of what's going to happen to them on this earth, but a fear or a fear of like what man will do to them or a fear of sharing the message of Christ with others. He wanted them to be released from the fear of what's to come and what they will see and experience, but yet have this amazing, like awesome, healthy fear in relation to who God is. And it's a good fear. It's so clear from these passages that fearing God is good because it saves us from caving into our own sinful nature. That's why hearing someone is God-fearing actually makes us trust that person more. If they fear God, they're more likely to keep their word and treat others with kindness. And so if they fear God, they're more likely to actually do what he says. 
In Romans 3, there's this classic chapter on sin. And uh, Paul writes that uh, our chief sin is that we have no fear of God at all. Whoa. Our chief sin is that we would have zero fear of God. Like not acknowledge who he is and the power he has and what his place is and what our place is. And so it really does start with the fear of God. As Proverbs 9.10 states, as we talked about last week, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so do you want wisdom in this place? I asked this last week. Do you want wisdom? Yeah, I desperately need wisdom. Like, do you want understanding of who God is? Then fear him, because if you fear him, it's a result of your understanding of who he is. I've been thinking about two things lately that have become like more clear the older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus. And I'll be really honest with you guys, like these two things have been like in my face a lot over the last year. And I know that I might talk a lot about turning 40, but something happened when I turned 40 that there was kind of this realization for me that, wow, like I'm sort of halfway through. And God started really opening my eyes up to some things, like realizing I'm not immortal, right? <laughs> Anybody else think that you're immortal? Everybody under 40's hands are up, right? But one of the things I started to realize is how little I am. And I know I'm huge in stature, <laughs> just massive, right? But I'm so small in comparison to who God is. I'm so small. And it's never been more evident in my life than it is now that I'm small in comparison to God. Like the more life I experience, the, the more I understand my place in this world, that I'm not God, that I'm not powerful, that I'm not the creator. Like when, when I was young, again, I, I lived as though I was immortal. Like you're daring, you try things thinking that you just cannot be harmed. And I remember older people when I was in my teens and my 20s, telling me one day you're going to pay for those years of snowboarding and skateboarding. And in that season, I remember thinking, nah, I won't. Maybe other people have, but I'm good. I'm healthy and I'm strong. And if there's been a massive reality check for me in the last year, it's been, wow, my body actually can hurt. <laughs> like, I feel it more now than ever. It's a reminder. The older I get, the more I re realize that I'm not powerful, that I'm actually very small, but I realize that, 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 that when, I, when I look in comparison to who God is, how great he is, like in this last year, Heather and I have seen so much death. Like it started out, I, I, I've done very few hospital visits over the last seven years of my life, so like a handful here and there. And it started out with like six of them in the month of January alone. And then a woman in our church that passed away in January. Um, and then my mother-in-law getting sick and then her passing away a couple months ago. And then the husband of a woman that's on staff at our church passing away a couple weeks ago. And, and then got the news last night that Dan Stolbarger's son has passed away. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself like, life is a blip. It's so quick. We are so small. So small. He's so big. And though things inflict this body on earth, 
These things do not have authority over our soul. And yet God does. The second thing I've come to realize is this. First is how little I am, and the second is how little I know. The older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize I don't have a clue. (laughs) I've been through seasons where I thought I had all the answers in my life. I, I, I thought I knew what I was doing, and the older I get, it seems like the more I realize how much I don't know. Does anybody else relate to that, or is it just me? And there's a real sense of humility and comfort in both of these realizations for me, honestly. I was never created to be God. And I was never created to know everything. But according to Proverbs, fearing the Lord is where wisdom starts. And I think that these two realizations of how small we are and how little we know actually are more wise than I once thought I was in my youth so small and I know so little and he is so big and he knows everything and I think that these are a result of the fear of God being present in my life to be honest with you because the fear of God sort of puts us in our place it it, it puts us in our place and it puts him in his and it actually provides a ton of freedom for me because I stop striving to be powerful in my life and to do everything and I stop striving to convince people that I know everything because I just don't but God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing not me do, do any of you again feel as though you're lacking wisdom this morning Proverbs says fearing God is the beginning of wisdom And James says that if you're lacking wisdom, do what? Ask God. If you're lacking it, go to him. And and I think the idea of fear of God is supposed to hang in this tension of understanding what all of this means. We we live in this tension of fearing him and, and him having the power to create and end life. And that's scary. But the tension is really found in the fact that we also know that he's loving that he's just, that he's merciful. We know that though God has the power to wreak havoc if he wanted to, he's also loving and he's merciful and often holds back because of his grace. Amen? And this is the tension that we live in, a tension that we should feel, a healthy tension between God being just and God being full of grace and love But this loving God also desires that we would know who he actually is and who we actually are. You have to know your place and his place. And a loving God also deserves reverence. And a loving God also deserves obedience. And it's wrong of us to presume that obedience equals legalism. Because we we figure that a lot. Oh no, you know, because of Jesus it doesn't work. It doesn't matter obedience because Obedience is just legalism. It's just actions. But it's wrong of us to presume that obedience equals legalism if obedience in his eyes actually brings worship. It's wrong for us to consider that legalism if it's worship to him. And obedience is only legalism if the heart of the follower is void of worship and reverence to the God that we serve. You want it to turn into legalism, be the Pharisees. What were they accused of? Having everything figured out on the outside, but yet the inside was rotting away. 
There was no worship in their hearts. Their hearts were not engaged in the work. They were just in it for the actions. You want legalism? Go do a bunch of things without actually fearing God. You want obedience? You fear God and you do what he says. It's two totally different things. And so we can't constantly look at legalism and obedience as being one and the same because they're not. And so I want to end with this this morning. In 1 John 4, 18 through 21, it says this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen? Read that again. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen? (laughs) Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. But this is love perfected with us. So that, and listen to this, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. If you want confidence of where you're going to spend eternity this morning and and how you're going to be judged as you stand before God, it will only be found in the person and the love and the work and the life that's brought through Jesus. That's it. You want to know where you stand before the living God? It's only coming through Jesus. He's the only way. And John goes on to say this in verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. So how does the fear of God, who is perfect love, actually take away fear? How does that work? It's a crazy dichotomy to think of. This theologian William Eisenhower said it this way. If the worship team wants to come up. Um, He said, unfortunately... Many of us presume, and I want, please listen to this. This is not just a quote for quote's sake. I want you to hear what he's saying. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an an ominous threat to my ego, but not me. He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nonetheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. What an awesome quote. 
ultimate example of fear and perfect love working together is Jesus Christ. He warned us at every turn to fear God, not man. And he confirmed that in everything about his life and his death. And he spoke lovingly, but he spoke frankly to all. And he didn't mince words when people needed to face their sin and repent. But he also demonstrated love beyond human understanding when he lived out these words. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. And the question I want to leave you guys with this morning is this. With a love like that, what's left to fear but God? Who else demonstrated this love for you but Jesus? With a love that that demonstrated itself to the point of death in order to make his point, why would you fear anything else in this world? Why wouldn't you fear the God of the Bible? Why wouldn't you fear Yahweh? And I actually think that this is a real issue in the church today. We don't talk about this because we're afraid to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to follow God's ways, you fear him first. Because you fear him first in order to understand your place and his place. So that when you follow his ways, you're not moving in your own power, in your own might, but based on the power and the might of the Most High God. He's the one moving in and through you. This isn't about you. It's actually about him. Your life was never, it never was put into existence so that you could bring glory and honor to yourself and bring yourself fame and notoriety in this world. Your life was granted to you. The reason you got up this morning was not so that you could build wealth and establish a massive career and get your business in line and establish your kingdom and your empire on this earth. The reason he granted you life this morning, breath this morning, is because he saw a purpose in the life that he was granting you to honor him with everything you do and say. But if you don't believe that you're small and you don't know everything and you don't fear him, you actually cannot walk in his ways. And that's my challenge for you this morning, to examine your heart. Do you really fear God? Do you understand your place? And if perfect love casts out all fear of what's around us, why do we get so caught up in what's going on around us when his love has enveloped us and empowered us and consumed us and given us this opportunity to live and breathe and bring honor to his name? Pray with me. You guys can stand. Jesus, I thank you for your perfect love for us. And uh, God, I just know that there are people in this room this morning that have really struggled with relinquishing their power and their knowledge to you. God, in some ways, we fight so hard to make much of ourselves and not acknowledge our place in this world. Jesus, I pray that this morning that you come in spirit and in truth, that you come in power, Lord. I pray for those in this room that have been questioning and wrestling with this idea of God and wondering 
what this all is about. Lord, I pray that only you would begin to unlock those mysteries for those that are asking those questions this morning. God, your, your word says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so we pray, God, that we would have a healthy perspective on what this fear looks like. And I pray for your church this morning, God. I ask for your spirit to come upon us and to move through us because, Jesus, we do not want to follow your ways and do what you've asked us to do unless we first establish you as king, as Lord of lords, king of kings, the Messiah, the one who paid the ultimate price for us. Jesus, you so awesome, and I pray that our lives would bring much worship and much honor to your name, God. I pray that as we leave here this morning, you continue to help us wrestle through this idea of what it looks like to flesh this out, God, to follow your ways, Jesus, to have a healthy fear of you, to understand your tremendous love and your grace and your mercy for us, God. I pray that you would be the one to do the convincing, God, that you would move in the hearts of those in this room, and as we leave this place, do God, God I, I do pray for transformation to occur in us. God, this is nothing but a religious action and experience if it isn't by the power of the Most High God moving in us and through us, transforming us and creating us more in the image and the likeness of the God that we serve. And so we want to be more like you, Jesus. We want to follow your ways. We want to love those around us, lay our lives down for those around us, serve those around us. God, we want to speak as you give us the words to speak and go to the places that you've called us to go. And we want to move as you say, go, Jesus. I pray that this week, Lord, that there would be opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for your church that's present in this room this morning to be moved by you to say things and do things that are out of the ordinary, but a result of their fear of you and their following your ways, Jesus. I pray that you have your way in, your, in our city. I pray that you have your way in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships with one another. God, I pray that you renew and revitalize, Lord, and transform us from the inside out. In your name we pray. Amen.